0: you haven't heard me uh, online, I'll tell you guys, welcome again. Glad you guys are joining us. I love singing that song right there. Um, Makes me want to go preach a different sermon, I tell you. To say, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good and that He will satisfy us and He will give us all things. It just makes me think of all the times this week where I was so unsatisfied with things and and perhaps even a little bit uh, frustrated or I don't know if bitter is the right word, but just felt like maybe God wasn't where I thought he should be. And the reality was that the reason I wasn't satisfied is not because he isn't good, but because I was drinking deeply from different wells. And what I was tasting was not satisfying because it it wasn't God and it wasn't from him. And I'll chew on that one for a little while. Maybe you guys will too. But we are going to be Uh, Galatians 5 to to jump off and then we'll quickly go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So you guys can kind of mark those uh, spots and and we can kind of go from, uh, we can go from there. When I was 16 years old, uh, I made the most expensive purchase I had ever made with my own money. It was $225, uh, give or take, probably actually a couple pennies over that, $225, uh, and it was one of the first of a next generation of baseball bats. Now, this may sound crazy to pay $225 for a baseball bat, and I'll tell you that is crazy, uh, but it was the, the first in, a, in the next generation of bats that would come uh, after me that I never purchased. It would get increasingly expensive uh, after that. This bat was, uh, I think I have a, a picture of it here. Hopefully, you guys have uh, have, have got that. This bat was called a reflex. That was the, the name of the bat. Uh, this is one that I found on eBay, and I swear I almost bought it on eBay just so I could get this thing again. Um, but it was $225, and it was supposed to make you uh, m- make you stronger, hit the ball further. It promised to do all kinds of different things. The walls were thinner, but the bounce off of the wall was was better. Uh, I mean, within six months, though, they had already built a a bat that was better than this one that was similar, but it was a little bit of a different uh, design, but I didn't care because I had spent $225 on this bat, the most expensive thing I had bought at that point in my life, and I loved that bat. I absolutely loved that bat. I cleaned it after most games, you know, because I would, I would get a hit and throw it in the dirt, and I didn't want my, my bat to get super dirty, so I would, I would wipe it down. I would regularly uh, take the grip off, retape it with athletic tape to make it just so. If you're a baseball guy, you understand what I'm talking about. you got to have that grip just right, and so I would regularly do that. Every couple of weeks, I'd retape it and re-grip it. I put so much care and work into that. Uh, I was careful that I didn't hit it when it was too cold because these new generation bats, because they were thinner, they were known to crack a little bit uh, quicker, and so I would use somebody else's bat. I didn't care if I cracked their bat, but I loved my bat, and I wanted to make sure that I took care of that uh, bat. I hit a couple home runs with it. I absolutely loved it. But do you know what? That bat did not love me. Uh, I struck out with it a lot. Uh, I never became the hitter that I thought I, would, uh, I was going to be, that I thought this bat would help me to be. Uh, it was probably probably about an inch too long and a couple of ounces too heavy, uh, and I realize that now made my swing a little bit slow. Uh, so that bat didn't love me, but I still loved that bat, even though it didn't love me back. And do you know why that bat didn't love me back? Because it was a bat. Now, maybe that's really, really obvious to you guys. And you're thinking, well, of course it doesn't. It's a baseball bat. That bat can't love you back. But I promise you, as a 16-year-old, I was really convinced it was going to love me back in some uh, form or fashion. From the money I spent on it to the way that I took care of it, um, I treated it as though I would love it and it would return that love. I, I babied it. I protected it. I loved it, but my love was totally irrelevant to the bat, because it was a bat. And again, that may be obvious to you, but I would would press you guys just a little bit that what may be so obvious to you guys from an outsider looking in may not be so obvious to you whenever you love something like that. And if I were to press in a little bit on you guys, I wonder what you would say that you love. And what your blind spot might be there, too. You see, this is the nature of love. We are created to love because we are created in the image of God. But what we love is where things can go so often wrong. Because almost always, our love is predicated on what we can get in return. A love for a spouse, even on some measure, a love for uh, for our children, a love for things. Any of those things are almost always built on what we get in return. We love things because they can love us back. Or at least we can get something out of them that makes us think they love us back. But that's not necessarily love at all. Really, that's more, that's more kind of a, a selfish motivation to just say, I want what can help me. And it's more about me than it is about that other person. But today we're going to talk about the most basic of topics that we can't even begin to probe the depths of as we do it. It may be a basic, simple topic, but we'll get nowhere close to probing the depths of it. We're going to talk about the love of God. Now, we've been talking about the attributes of God, and we've been going through this all the way since back in June, And we're doing that now, though, as we're going through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Let's read it one more time together, Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Hopefully, as we read through each of those things, something comes to your mind about what we've talked about each of those things with peace and patience, goodness and faithfulness. Hopefully, the, the, the things we've talked about uh, kind of come to your mind how we've covered those things. And now we are at the final, the final of the fruit of the Spirit. It's first in the list, but it's the last that we are talking about. We've been looking at each of these because we feel like this is what it means to be called a Christian, to be a Christian. Because what we are called to do is with each of these, this, this fruit of the Spirit, they are attributes of God first, that we are then called to reflect back to others and reflect back even to ourselves the nature of who God is. And there is perhaps no greater way, <clears throat> no greater way for us to reflect back the nature of God than to do that through love. Now, before we get too far, I want to plead with you this morning do not check out on me right here. Especially guys, I would say this, but I'm I'm saying all of you, don't check out on me right here because that could be super easy for us to do. After all, if there is anything that sounds more routine, more cliche, more over-discussed, more thrown into sermons, more constantly tacked onto anything, it's just to say that God loves you. God loves you. Is there anything that you could hear more coming out of 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 Christians in the church and to say, God loves you. Yeah, 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 I get it. God loves me. God loves you. We're good. Can we all just go eat lunch now? You don't need to spend forever talking about this. But let me urge you to resist that impulse. In fact, I'd say if that is your your inclination this morning, I'm not even saying you're fully there, but that's just your inclination this morning. Let me urge you not to lean back and to check out, but instead to lean in to understand what we're talking about because when we speak of god's love we aren't talking about something that we know or that we're familiar with even those of us that have perhaps followed jesus for a long time and 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 tried to, to study what it means that god is love it's still something we do not understand We aren't talking about something that we know well. We aren't talking about something that we can relate to. When we talk about God and His love, we're talking about something that is borderline incomprehensible. And I say borderline incomprehensible because God has at least given us enough of the picture of His love that we can understand some aspects of it. And what the Bible tells us about His love, what it does show us about His love, should blow your mind and it should wreck your heart you see god's love is not like grandma's love for you it's not like how you love your wife it's not like how you love your kids it's not like how you love pie it's not like how you love a baseball bat it's not like any of those things god's love is radically different from anything that we can muster up from inside of ourselves So I want to begin, I want to talk about the nature of his love, namely the personal nature of his love. So look with me uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I may have said Exodus, but Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Moses writes, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So I want you to see in there what God is trying to communicate to us there. He's communicating to the people that he has chosen, the nation of Israel, and he talks about why he chose them. Do you see what he says in there? He says it's because he set his love upon them. Do you see where it says that in there? In verse, uh, verse seven there, it says, "It was not because um, it was not because you were more in number than any other people in the Lord, th- more in num- number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you." That phrase right there, "That the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people." And then it says, "But it is because." So what it says is, God set his love upon you, not for any of these other reasons, but he set his love upon you because, and then do you see what comes after that? Because the Lord loves you. Do you see what is being communicated there? Do you know why God loves you? Because God loves you. That's what he's saying. Do you know why God has pursued you and set his love upon you? It's because God pursued you and set his love upon you. There is no other answer for that, right? Because if there's some other answer for that, then whenever that ceases to be true, God's love ceases to exist. So if God sets his love on Israel because they are a strong and mighty military power, then whenever they cease to be a strong and and powerful uh, military power, then God will cease to love them. Because the reason for his love has disappeared. But what God wants to make clear is he loves because he loves. And there is no other reason that draws him to it. That is a powerful thing for us this morning. That's the only answer we're given as to the cause of God's love. God makes it clear that there was not something that drew his love out from the people of Israel. He goes out of his way to make sure there was nothing there. It was only his choice to love him. And then his faithfulness to that, or to love them. And then his faithfulness to that choice. And that is all. There's so much that we could pull out of this. There's so much that we could talk about this. And we'll come back to this idea that there was nothing that drew, them, that, that drew it out of them. But first, let's look at the wording. He set his love on them. He set his love on them. What that communicates is that God is actively doing something. He is actively pursuing. He is the pursuer. He is the actor. Think of it this way. In order for God to set his love upon us, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that God is not some kind of abstract being that is blindly out there in the universe. This is a popular way to talk about God. That perhaps God is there, but God is removed. God is distant. God is not very active in what he does. He is simply there, and we have to somehow kind of acknowledge him. Now, that's not how we talk about God, but that is a common way for people to talk about God, especially in in more secular society. And what we have to acknowledge is that God is not like that at all. He is a personal God. He chooses to operate In relationship with his creation. He did not have to do that. He did not have to enter into relationship with his creation. He didn't have to be a personal God. He could have responded to Adam's sin and he could have ended humanity there. He could have responded to Adam's sin and let humanity just continue going and still be completely removed. He owes no relationship to Adam and Eve and to all of their offspring. He does not owe that at all. He is not bound to them except for the fact he has chosen to be bound to them. Now, that's some pretty heady stuff, but it's a big deal. Because what that tells us is that God chose to have relationship. He chose to be personal. He chose to tie our lives and His glory together. That alone should blow our minds. He chose to pursue a rebellious creation. Not as a robotic arbiter of justice, but in a very, very personal pursuit of love. The way J.I. Packer talks about it is that, that in that moment, God forever tied his joy and rejoicing to us. It talks about how God rejoices over one sinner who comes to him. God chose to tie his joy and his rejoicing to us. He is so personal, he abandoned his ability and his his perfect right to be totally stoic and removed so that he could pursue us. This is different than the cold, indifferent person many people imagine when they think about God. He is not some stoic, distant thing that simply responds to what he sees. He's not an unfeeling computer program. Like, input in, this is how I respond. Input out, here it is. He is a personal God. He is not checked out until we decide it's time to bring him into the picture. You know, this is how a lot of us can live. Pursue our own ends, pursue our own goals, pursue our own dreams, do our own thing. And then, whenever we decide now is time, we say, okay, God, now I'm going to acknowledge you're there and I want you to come into the picture. That is not how God works. He is not some impersonal thing like a baseball bat that we can shower with love or respond to indifferently and he is not not impacted or he is not uh, deal with that. He is a personal God who pursues and personally comes after us. Whether we acknowledge him, whether we even know he's there, he is intimately there with us. He knows everything about us, and He knows us well. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. This is often read whenever we talk about uh, arguments against abortion, but think about this uh, in a different context. Think about this simply for you and who you are. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, I, when as yet there was none of them. Even before you exist, God knows you well. He knows everything about you. He knit you together. God's relationship with us is not so, some sort of abstract, distant, impersonal, legal one, as like a judge that is supposed to be blind to the, the plaintiff that's before him so that he can, he can exercise fair justice. That is not how God works with us. He would be right to stand over us simply as judge and operate simply on whether we broke the law or not. But he doesn't do that. God's relationship with you is an intimate pursuit of someone that he has set his love upon. If you are in Christ this morning, you can rest in that love. No matter the trial, no matter the sin and shame, no matter the failure and faults, God knows And God still pursues you, relentlessly pursues you. We can see that pursuit clearly whenever Jesus has a a conversation with Nicodemus in a verse that we all know well, John 3, 16 and 17. Let it hit you again this morning in a different way a different light. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what did God do in response to his intimate knowledge of us? his intimate knowledge of our failures, his intimate knowledge of our sin, his intimate knowledge of our rebellion, what did he do? He pursued. He did not dismiss. He did not cast us out or throw us away. He he pursued. And how did he pursue us? In the most intimate and personal ways. He came himself. He sent his son to die in our place. This is why I love being able to talk about the Christmas season and what we have coming up because we get to talk about the, the intimate way in which God sent His Son to the earth. Not just in all the great stories about Mary and Joseph and about Mary and, and, and about, uh, about um, Elizabeth and all the stories that we get to read and, and the angels that are there. Not just all of that. We get to talk about the coming of Jesus, not just in a manger, but God himself with us. Why? Because he's pursuing us in that moment. He's coming after us in that moment. I'm getting ahead of myself, a little bit of a preview for, for Christmas there, but he, he's coming for us. And why does he come here? Why does Jesus come? Come, what does he say in verse 17? Not to condemn, but to save. So what does God do with the intimate knowledge of all of the ways we have failed him? He gives. He gave. But notice how this verse talks about giving and believing. He says he gave his son Son, for for those who believe in Jesus. And this is true and this is good. But would I submit to you that if you were to go to a verse that talks about the depths of God's love, this would not be the first one that I would send you to. There are others that I would send you to. God didn't just sit back and wait on us to become good people, He did not just sit back and wait on us to believe. He did something even greater. His love runs even deeper. It is even more counterintuitive. Jesus hinted at this love that he carried in his heart for his people. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus lays it out to give the ultimate sacrifice, to give yourself to the very end of what you can give. That is the greatest love. But then Paul takes it even another step. Because after all, lots of people have given their life for things. That is not unique to God. But what Jesus did was different than that. Romans 5, 6 through 8, my favorite verses in all of scripture. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is bound up in that little phrase there, while we were still sinners. Because if, if, if God waited to send Jesus when we weren't sinners, he would still be waiting. If God waited to send Jesus when we were worthy of that sacrifice, when we were good people who, who, who Paul says perhaps one would dare to die, if God had waited until that, he'd still be waiting. But the gospel, the good news, is that while we were still sinners, while we were enemy combatants, while we were arrogant, rude, angry, and dismissive, while we were captivate, captivated with things that are far less beautiful and infatuated with things that are not worthy, in those moments, in that moment, God pursued us because he loved us. Listen to this quote by J. I. Packer. I think this is great from Knowing God. It is staggering that God would love sinners. Yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become Unlovely, and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God loves people because he has chosen to love them, and no reason for his love can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. Love is awakened in in, in something, in us, because of the thing that is loved. I love my wife because there was something about my wife that caused me to love her. There was nothing in me that caused God to love me. It was everything in God that caused God to love me. His sovereign pleasure. He pursued us while we were sinners. There is no category for that in our human love. There is no category. That doesn't make sense to anyone or anything outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't pursue people that way. We pursue people because of what they can give to us and how they benefit us. God pursues people because he chose to pursue us. And that is all. He is altogether lovely, yet we do not love him. We are altogether unlovely, yet he loves us lest we begin to think that, like Israel, that God has pursued us in love because we are somehow good folk and that, that He probably should love us. In 1 John, John reemphasizes the point. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. Friends, we should love God. We should. He should be beyond all things lovely to us. He should be beyond all things. We should be drawn to Him above all. He is the one well that satisfies. He is the one drink we can take and we can say that He is good. We should pursue Him, but we do not. We are created with that instinct to love and to love the most lovely thing in this universe, God Himself. But that instinct has become so broken by the fall, by our own sin, that we constantly pursue other things and find other things to be more lovely and more worthy. From baseball bats to football players, from jobs to college degrees, from money to security, from health and and safety to comfort We pursue all of those things, but those things are not personal. And they do not pursue us back. What becomes clear in Scripture is that the the reality of this undeserved, unwarranted, seemingly impossible love is that it should spur us on. And it should cause us to love in a way that is otherwise impossible for us. 1 John 4, 11, Just continue on in what we just read. Beloved, if God so loved us, how did he love us? Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son. If God so loved us, we, we also ought to love one another. This is why it's listed as a fruit of the Spirit. Because this is not something we manifest ourselves. It's why in that same chapter of Galatians 5, Paul is driving home the point that we have been given freedom in the Spirit and that we have been given that freedom explicitly so that we can love others. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So do you hear what Paul is driving at? We have been granted this love. We have been been pursued by God, shown a love when we were unlovely, when we were unlovable, we had been loved, pursued, saved, reconciled, and had our sins accounted for through Jesus Christ. And what do we do with that? We have been loved in that way so that we can serve others. So look around this room this morning. Perhaps even more to the point, look at the person who is sitting closest to you. God has loved you, so that you may love them. Even when they seem unlovable, the Spirit is there to empower you. Just as God pursued us when we were the most unlovely, so we too must pursue those around us when they seem the most unlovable, when they are the most unservable, when there is nothing in us that wants to pursue that person or that that relationship. What God calls us to is a life of service to reflect the love He has shown us. And when you want to serve them least, it's when you have the greatest opportunity to show the power and the love of Christ the most. This must most clearly extend to those who do not know Jesus. This is part of what bothers me so much about the way Christians respond to politics and what grieves me so much whenever we consider politics over the last several years. Christians often act, and this is true on both sides, I'm not talking about one side or the other, but Christians often act that a vote dictates the way you love others. It does not, nor does anything else. There is nothing that dictates whether we love someone else. Now, there may be times where it's necessary to be removed from a situation, where it may be uh, time for you to disengage from uh, a relationship or from people that are abusive or uh, oppressive or chaotic. It It doesn't mean that we have to be constantly engaged with that person. But it does mean that we are called to love that person. Because, praise God, he did not remove his love from us when we were unworthy and unlovable. Listen to this application here from a a guy named Martin Jones. wrote a book called God Is, A Great Little Devotion. We must meditate carefully on this attribute of God because our own attitude toward others will change when we come to grasp God's love for us. In other words, if God and Christ can set their hearts on hell-deserving sinners who by nature hate God, then how can we have a different attitude than God toward the same people? We love unbelievers with a love that seeks to win them, not only by words, but also by deeds to the love of God in Christ. This is our call to love and to serve. And this is why it's so heartbreaking whenever Christians are so quick to cast out and to demonize and to, to tear people down when we are called to love. And it does not mean that we back away from the truth of sin. That would be unloving too. But it does mean that we are still called to serve even in the midst of that. So this morning as we talk about God's love, we talk about what it means to love Him we are spurred on not by our sheer effort to love others, but because we were loved by God. And the question that I have for you is, if others were to observe the way you love someone, whether you be a, a spouse, your family, your neighbors, your church, your coworkers, what would it say about the greatness of God's love that you have come to know? Would it make them step back and say, there's something that they have that they have received that they've been a beneficiary of that's changed them, that's made them love others too? Or would they say, you know what, that person loves the same way that I do? They love me for what they can get from me. They love me for for what what, what they can use me for. How do you love others? How do you serve others? that will tell you a lot about how well you know the love of God. This morning, as we wrap up, as we finish this up here, we finish up our final fruit of the Spirit. We'll still talk a little bit more in the next week or two here. But as we wrap this, these individual attributes up, we must never forget that when it says God is love, it's not saying that love is God. What it is saying is that God has set his affections on us. So much so that we can intertwine his love with the very nature of who he is. And that because of that, as he has loved us, we too are to love others. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we confess that we know too little of your love. We do not understand it. We do not meditate on it enough. We do not appreciate it. And too quickly, it is simply a cliche and just and add on to something, something that we throw out there. Father, this morning I pray that you would, you would freshly blow our minds with the, the audacity of your love and how we as unlovely and unlovable people can be the recipients of that love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.